Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 1, Chapters 1 and 2 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 1, read by Jeff Breitman. Our setting is 793 AD in Western Ireland and the Isle of Iona in Scotland. Part 1 Canuchtoch's Confession Chapter 1 The Cattle I wasn't sentimental about the animals. As a child, my sister Una tried to make them all pets. Our cows, sheep, and pigs. She named each one, and before they were slaughtered, she prayed for their souls. One day our father inquired about her prayers, and she told him, So our pigs tomorrow will alight to heaven. And he slapped her there, under the cross. I think of this every Martinmas. It seems right that I begin to tell you my story with the slaughter. I haven't forgotten what you said about the hides and the pen of God written on their skin. The last time I slaughtered for Martinmas at home, Una and my niece Deirdre were with the children under the cross on the hill, singing a song about the approach of winter. Dermot led the last calf into the pen. From above us the children sang, Winter, winter, coming nigh, Hear the corncrake's lonely cry, Winging onward to the sky. Don't go daylight, don't come dark night, Winter, winter fires burning, Winter, winter seasons turning, Hear the wind blow round and round, Autumn cries a lonely sound. Dermot the priest swung the mallet down between the ears and the calf, the one Una named White Star for the white patch on its forehead, fell as if struck by lightning. We hoisted it up on the hooks, and I made the lengthwise slits in its neck. The calf was unconscious while its heart beat out its blood into the cauldron below. We made sure it was calm first. You know, fear gives it the taste of game. The boys, Kevin and Enan, Dermot's twin nephews, jostled closer to watch. It was their time to learn how to do it. I cut the belly with that long, knowing knife, careful not to pierce the bladder or intestine, and tied those off before pulling them out. Then I began to work on the skin with the smaller knife. It was slow, patient work to take the hide off in one piece, with the knife dulled for this work. Nearby, half a dozen men stood watching on the other side of the willow fence. Old Fiochrach judged the scene with his high-pitched, grating voice, looking for mistakes. Any time now, Fiochrach said. Is the knife too sharp? 
The knife slipped through the warm blood, curving around the ribs, then found the precious sinew at the spine. My knife was like a pen, drawing the calf's shape, or a sculptor's tool smoothing flesh rather than stone. Knuchtoch is so slow. My knife slipped, slitting the skin. Now you've done a careless thing, the old man said. I stopped and took a deep breath. I looked at Fiochroch, and it must have been a dangerous look because the old man shrunk away behind his son. Dermot spat on the ground as a retort. I remember the day had grown warm. There had already been a frost, but now the unseasonable warmth made a Martinmas summer day. I sweated, but it was the general noise that caused my sweat. Twenty-four lived on the strong farm, one of the larger in Connacht. We were ten men, seven women, five children, and two elderly. Their number pressed in on me. You know I was from Connacht, hence my name, Man of Connacht. My mother had lost three sons before me and decided on something plain and simple. We didn't slaughter more calves because Dermot was granting some to new clients. Now that I was leaving, the strong farm was Dermot's, and he was no longer a Boere, an average farmer, but a Mariger, a strong farmer, and he had the potential to raise his honor price and be a lord of superior testimony. I need the last hide not to go in the tannin pit, I said. Dermot nodded, stretching his big, black-haired arms. He was always the more powerful one. The nephews wheeled the cart of hides down to the stream. Quiet descended, with occasional sounds flaring up and disappearing. A voice raised in question, a laugh, the bark of a dog. A chattering squirrel, someone running. Every sound was clear and distinct, sudden, and just as suddenly stopped. Nearby was a stone vat of urine, and flies hovered over it, their buzzing too, not continuous, but rising and falling. The sounds seemed to echo, and then were swallowed by the pensive air. I told Dermot I was going to the stream to wash, and he nodded. I didn't need to ask about who would do what about rending the fat, boiling the hooves for glue, cleaning the guts. Everyone knew what to do. The wide stream bubbled with activity. Una, having come down the hill to do her part, knelt on the rocky bank and scraped a hide with a smooth stone sharpened on one edge. Kevin and Enan were in the water, dunking the hides alternately with Una's scrubbing. I stripped to my linen braise and stepped into the cool water up to the thighs and rinsed my bloody hands. The nephews laughed as they played with the hides, but a deep silence beat in the air between each sound. This silence was what I looked for, strained my ears for, 
and it seemed it was a path of silence already being laid before me between the farm and the monastery. I was stepping into the silence, every moment drawing me closer to that destination, the monastery, where silence is a vow. Una started singing softly to herself. She scrubbed rhythmically, and her head bobbed, the black hair shaking and loosening from its hood. Her song was lilting, a song of parting and sorrow. Her voice rose little by little. This sound disturbed my quiet now, and reached into me. The song brought me back to all I was leaving all I was separating from. It was a stolen feeling. The beauty and sadness of the song no longer belonged to me, and I no longer had the right to be moved. But my throat tightened, my breath shook a little. The boys stopped playing and dragged the hides out of the water. Una sat back on her heels, tilted her head back, and sang the last verse with her eyes closed. When she opened her eyes, she looked straight at me and smiled, because I was staring at her. She was not aware of the touching emotion of her song. I doused my face with water and came up to her on the rocks. Your mangy hair will be shorn and not look like a bird's nest any more, Una said pushing my wet yellow hair back behind my ears. Only a woman would look on the vow as a change of hairstyle. She laughed, her crinkled eyes glinting black in the low sun. I don't think that. You'll be at peace now, I think. So you think? Was I not at peace? No, never. Una tucked up her stray locks and smoothed her hands over her apron. It's a terrible thing, though you bore it well. I don't mean to say you complained. You never did. To wait... She sighed and put her hand over her mouth. She meant it was a terrible thing to wait for someone to die. I knew. Our father was dead a month now. And with his death went my obligation to stay on the farm. I took her hands, wanting to contradict her, but I couldn't. She met my gaze with a steady, confident look. You will be happy now. One doesn't seek to be happy. You know what I mean. All right. We walked up the slope from the stream with the boys who pulled the cart to the urine vat. They spread out the hides and pushed them down into the vat with a long stick. One of these hides is not for tannin, I said. After the hides soaked in the urine for three days, we pulled them out and lay them one at a time over a beam that I sat behind, the beam between my knees. I scraped off the hair and fat with the curved luna. The hair fell in a wet mass at our feet. We hauled buckets of water to fill the tub next to the barn and put in the hides to soak again. After two days of soaking in water, 
The hides were ready for the pit of tannin, liquor. We folded them and lay them in the pit, except for one. I picked the finest, palest skin. Una and I stretched it over a frame and fastened it by pushing small, smooth pebbles around its edge and tying a cord around the bulge to the edge of the frame. I picked up my lunellum, the wide blade for scraping off the last of the flesh. A shadow blocked the light of the doorway. What's this you're up to? Lemar asked. He took jaunty steps towards us and nodded to the tannin pit. That's good. We need leather. What's that? Vellum, I said. I glanced at Una because she made a little sound from her throat. She put her hand on the frame and grasped the edge. We don't need any vellum, said Lamer. I wish to show the abbot I can still scribe. I want to bring a document with me. It's my skin. It's not your skin. Put it in the tannin pit. It was my calf when I slaughtered it. I don't remember you stringing up any calves. You are a monk now. You own nothing. Nothing belongs to you now. Move aside. Lemar was old Fiachrach's big adolescent son. He had made a claim on the cattle, which I'll tell you of presently. Una turned red and didn't move. Lemar grabbed the frame, threw the hide into the pit, and pushed it down with a stick. If you had asked me respectfully, I would have let you have it, he said. He leaned back, his face fat and satisfied, holding the stick out from his waist, daring me to fight him. The tannin pit between us. I am a slight man, but I had almost a decade on him. I seized the end of the stick and pulled sharply, using his weight against him. He stumbled, perched on the edge of the pit. He grabbed Una. Una instinctively pulled him back. His foot dunked in the tannin liquor, but he righted himself with a gasp. We stood each holding the ends of the stick. He let go and flung it at me. You are a better Christian than your monk brother, he said to Una and stalked out. Una picked up the frame. He owes you a face cleansing. I wouldn't have helped him, but it was too quick for my thought. I've asked for a life of hardship. So it begins. Why does he think he has the right? I put my arm around her. He sees me as having come down in the world, and he sees the world as a boat where, if I am come down, he, at the other end, is raised up. Una told me later what she did as I stayed in the shed to sharpen tools. She went into the empty house. I can imagine she paused and listened. She knew what she was there for, but she glanced around as if looking for something, as if she were being watched. The chest was under a bench along the wall, almost invisible in the shadow. Its bronze clasp gleamed like the eye of a cat in the dark. She strode up to it with purpose, as if she had a legitimate need for something other than her goal. After all, 
It was as much her chest as Dermot's. She touched the clasp. It was as smooth as the skin of a fresh apple. When she opened the lid, a scent arose of old linen and leather. Feeling for it in the dark, she grasped the small square leather cover of the book and slid it under her apron against her chest. Hastily she put everything back as it was and hurried outside. She walked up the hill beyond the stream, where the tall, carved wooden cross marked the place of our masses, took out Dermot's psalter, and opened it. The question was, what page to cut out, so that I could scrape the ink off and use it? Somewhere a psalm would be unfinished. Some day Dermot would notice. My voice in her head whispered, You should have asked him. She felt herself blush, and she lowered the book from her eyes. From the top of the rise she had a view of the houses, the wall around them, the stream and shed, and the grain cribs. On the hill on the other side, figures moved rapidly among white-dotted sheep and orange cattle. She looked the opposite way at the long, low valley and stream. She thought of distant places she had heard of, like Frisia, where there were markets one could pay silver coins and buy things. Lords and abbots bought parchment, skins of wool, jars of wine, silk, all kinds of things. There was a world where not everything one could possibly have was the work of one's own hands. Someone shouted her name and she turned back toward the farm again. Holding the book to her chest, she waved and walked down and up the opposite hill. Kevin was waving. An animal lay at his feet. Blackie's dead. She knelt down to the big old black-faced sheep. Not long? Nay, I think not. She stroked its long black nose. A drop of blood glistened in its nostril. Then flay him. We need a skin for Knochtoch. Chapter 2 The Feast We had marched with torches to Rag Kruachang, my father's last demand to be buried among the ancestors of Connacht. At the huge mound of earth over ancient bones, we interred the old man. Nearby was the king's ritual seat of power, a rocky platform where long ago he would marry the earth. Gone with the pagan kings was the power of Connacht. Tara and its leaders, blessed by St. Patrick, had displaced them. A light frost brittled the grass over the plain on our way. On our return, it warmed and a light rain fell. With each step back without my father, my spirit rose into the damp sky. Our train was an arrow pointing away, 
away from my father's bones, away from the cruel words and fists, I was free. The morning after the slaughter, I stepped outside of my hut, one of the four huts of the unmarried men beyond the low stone wall of the farm. I outstretched my arms and whispered a prayer I'd remembered for a decade. Adiotur laborantium bonorum rector omnium custos ad propugnasium defensorque credentium exaltor humilium fractor superbentium. O helper of workers, ruler of the good, guard of the ramparts, and defender of the faithful, who lift up the lowly and crush the proud. From the far woods, a lone wolf's howl rose through the fog, chilling my neck, and I continued, ruler of the faithful, enemy of the impenitent, judge of all judges who punish those who err, pure life of the living, light and father of lights, shining with great light, denying to none of the hopeful your strength and help, I beg that me, a little man, trembling and most wretched, Rowing through the infinite storm of this age, Christ may draw after him to the lofty, most beautiful haven of life, an unending, holy hymn forever. From the envy of enemies you lead me into the joy of paradise, through you, Jesus Christ, who live and reign. I brought my cupped hands together and closed my eyes, listening to the low pulse of a few autumn birds. It was as if I'd spent the last decade in a fast dance or dizzying game, and now all was quiet. I opened my eyes, turning around. The grey and brown trees and stones, the yellow stubble of the rigs, moving with crows, the same as it had always been, now glowed dully in the gloom, lighted by the silence of the dawn. I tried to fix this pause in my memory, crossed myself, mouthing the name of Saint Columba, author of my prayer. The house of Una and Dermot huddled within the wall by the stream, directly under the high wooden cross that stood at the top of the hill. My eyes adjusted quickly to the darkness when I entered. The slender, pale-faced orchid near the door was Daedra, asleep on her cot. She murmured my name. I'm here. I stoked the fire, laying on some peat. Behind the curtain, Una and Dermot were awakened, muffled voices, a few words scattered in the dark hush of the morning. The sweet, pungent smoke rose, 
and Daedra stretched and came over. She felt for my shoulders from behind, for she was nearly blind. But there is nothing like the sweet smell of a good fire to wake to. She pressed her cheek against mine. Her long red hair fell over my neck. I gently pushed her away. You're too old to embrace me so. She sat on the floor beside me. You embrace mother, and she is old. She is my sister, and I am your niece. And for that, you must mind me. She drew her knees up to her chin. You're leaving soon, then? I poked the fire. I have one thing to do. But soon. Will you pick a foster son before you go? Your grandfather had ten years to pick one. Now it's up to Dermot. This is your home. I didn't get angry, knowing she only wanted for me not to leave, for things to stay as they had been. You might not feel the same as you did, she continued. Were you very young? I was fourteen when my father demanded I leave the monastery to come back to the farm. I have waited ten years. Daedra drew her legs up and rested her chin on her knees like a child, though she was perhaps thirteen and as tall as Una now. She gazed into the fire, the flame reflected in her milky eyes that glowed like opals. I had a bad dream just now. I dreamt I heard you reading from the Bible. You were on a stony outcropping, holding aloft the gospel like Saint Boniface, while a pagan raised his sword. You leapt out of the way and fell down the cliff. I awoke before you hit the ground. She stretched toward me. I'm afraid for you. It was only a dream. I reached out and held her hand, which was cool and moist. Is there danger leaving here? It meant nothing. You are afraid for me to leave, so you dreamt it. Dreams are not true? No. Some of the Bible stories sound like dreams to me when you read them. Are the stories of the Bible true? she asked. What do you mean by true? You know that they really happened. In this world? Is this world the true one? She exhaled in a laughing sigh, delighted in my familiar riddling ways. What do you mean? The stories of the Bible are true, but it's not necessarily that they are worldly, of this world. They're truer than that. It's this world that isn't true. Do you mean it's like a dream? The world? Something like that. A veil. The world wraps around us like a shroud, a knotted shroud of many layers, and we struggle to push it away, to see through it, to fight our way out of the darkness. What's true 
is beyond that darkness, for this world is death, and what's real is everlasting. That frightens me, I bent, and put my arms around her. And you at the monastery, all the day, will contemplate this mystery? She asked in my ear, every moment, struggling against the veil. What guides you in the darkness? The love of God. I felt her body suddenly relax. She held me loosely around the waist, with her head buried on my shoulder. Across from us, the fire cast our single shadow on the wall. It isn't easy, I said after a pause, to make this sacrifice. Her soft, hesitant voice asked, And it will be worth it to make this sacrifice? I hugged her tightly for a moment, and then pulled away, turned, and laid another turf on the fire. If I said that I had sacrificed ten years to live at home on the farm, it would seem I didn't care for them. I cared, enough to stay and protect them from our father past the time when I was old enough to leave. Our father never weakened. He lived on as hard as an ox bone to the end. For a moment, when he breathed his last, the only illness of his life, I felt joy, as if floating like a leaf on the wind. Shame pulled my soul back down to earth as Una prayed for him. I was free. Surely now. Dermot would have the cattle and somehow all would be well for the family. It had to be. I couldn't keep on with life on the strong farm, caring only for increasing the cattle, being a slave to cattle. That was the life of a lord. It was slavery to animals, rivalry, and vanity. I felt as if I saw the world in a dark brass mirror, a different place than others saw. Where they saw gold, I saw iron. They dreamt of kingdoms where I saw mud and waste. Mortality breathed down my neck. Each year passed with a finger pointing, a voice that said, You will die, and heaven will be too late to do your work. The work was it. The work of my dreams, which waited for me like a warm hearth after a long and storm-racked journey. The work that was a promise a promise I either made or had been made to me. A promise I nourished when our father broke the dawn with spitting shouts. A promise I kept with every prayer during my few hours alone on this crowded farm. In the chest under the table was Dermot's psalter, to me glowing in the dark of the box. I knelt and opened the chest. What are you getting? 
Deidre asked. I just wanted to look at it. The book. Will you read to me? I stroked the red leather cover and took it out. You won't be able to read to me when you're gone, she said. Dermot can read. Only a few psalms, the ones he's memorized. I brought the book to the fire. The letters trembled in the flickering light. Can you see the letters at all? I asked. I held the book up to her. She pushed back her red hair. Like the branches of trees in the forest, all tangled. But I understand what it does. It is like magic, isn't it? I traced the tiny letter in on the smooth vellum page. Not magic. It is a miracle. Normally, the king would settle affairs of business in winter after Shrovetide, but I planned to leave soon. So with the fresh kill, we held a feast. The strong farm supported 35 head of cattle. My 10 cattle and the calves we kept would be added to Dermot's 10. He was having a bad year. His sheep were dying, and his cows had borne no calves, as if bewitched. He was counting on my ten cattle and the calves. The local king, Dumnush of the Mac Gobron, with his thanes, came to approve of my plans. The king of Connacht had red hair and a closely trimmed red beard speckled with grey. He was short and brawny. His large, freckled hand patted the hilt of a short sword in his belt. He brought his poet Teague to the feast. As we ate veal and drained the keg of beer, Teague recited the story of the king's ancestors. It was not a long story, as his family had newly risen to power in the province. When Teague had told of the end of the last wars, Kevin raised his cup toward the poet and said, If you please, let us hear of Neil of the Nine Hostages, founder of our land. Enan kicked Kevin's ankle, and Kevin spilled his beer with a little shout. Everyone looked at the king, who raised his cup too. Of course, let us hear of Neil. We respect the Enail. Neil Nigillach was founder of the Enail line, the oldest family in Connacht, kin of all who hosted the feast. The Enail were rivals of the Macabron, the king's family, but no longer held the grip of power. There was still prestige in the name, but we were laid low. Teague, Standing tall before us, his large face looming in the semi-dark of twilight, raised his hands and spoke with a rolling voice. Neil of the Nine Hostages was the fifth son, the son of Ochid's second wife. But his first wife, Mungfind, was a jealous woman who tried to interfere from the beginning. She sent Neil's mother to labor in the field when she was heavy with child, and afraid for him when he was born, healthy and sound. 
his mother gave him to the poet Torna to raise as his foster son. We kin of the E-Nail knew the stories well, but we sat still and listened with enchantment at the rolling words. The poet got to the part of Neil's test, when the druid Sithchen determined which son would succeed his father. The sons were put into a house set afire, and commanded them to bring out the most important thing. The poet turned to the children. And what would you bring forth to save? A little girl said, My spoon! A boy said, My knife! Kevin raised his cup. The beer! Save the beer! The crowd laughed. Teague continued. And so, one son did save the beer, and another the hammer, and another the weapons, and another the bellows. But Niall brought forth the anvil, and the old druid said, Here is the one who will succeed you. I said in Una's ear, I would save pen and ink. When Teague was finished, Dermot raised his cup. To St. Columba of the E-Nail, the king said, To blessed St. Columba and blessed St. Patrick, for St. Patrick was patron of the Macabron. We all drank. I felt Limar's glance from where he sat across and a little down from me. He sat next to his father, Fiachrach. Lemar's Adam's apple bulged like a sharp stone, and he had a strong grip on his knife, which he waved in the air between stabs at his meat. A fine sweat glowed on old Fiachrach's forehead as father and son spoke to each other, and the king who sat across from them. Our trenchers were empty, save for split bones, the marrow consumed. Enan held his beer to the dog's mouth. The children lay on the ground, falling asleep. The king's thanes lit torches. It was time to discuss our business. So, it is the white martyrdom for you, Domnash said. I stuck to my initial vow as best I could here. I never took a wife. His father hoped he would take my daughter Maeve, said old Fiachrach. I didn't answer. There is a rival claim to your cattle, said the king. I looked hard at Lemar, who looked away at his father. He should speak, I said. I have a claim, Lemar said sullenly. My father was foster brother of Connachtoch's father, and my older brother was his foster son. When my brother died, Connachtoch came home, but it was supposed to go to my brother, and now it should go to me. Lamar lightly sawed his knife against the edge of the table. Old Fiachrach continued, Connachtoch has no sons or brothers. His sister has no sons, but only a blind daughter whom no one would want. Who would it go to when they are gone? It might as well be settled to us now. The king turned to me. And why do you want to give it over to Una? They make sense. 
How can he even be the one to decide? Withdrawing from the world as he is, Lemar asked. It's no decision of his. Let him speak, Dermot said. I said, as a youth, Lemar went on summer raids, wildly sowing devastation. He won't take care or protect the cattle. Some of the retainers laughed because they had been on these raids with Lemar. I went mad when my brother died. I'm older now, Lemar said. You still can't show how you would pass on the cattle. My two nephews, Kevin and Enan, said Dermot. Lamar said, your claim is no stronger than mine. Less so. The king drummed his fingers, calculating. It seems to me Lamar has the stronger claim. There's also the plough half owned by Connachtoch, Lamar said. Dermot spoke. The cattle are of the E-Nail and should stay in our family. The king waved his hand, smiling generously. Let's not be divided. We all only want what is fair. Connachtoch is determined to give up his claim. Let me have a word with my brother-in-law, please. Dermot gestured to me, and I rose to go with him. We walked up the hill to the cross. The sun cast purple on the western hills, and the feast was a dusky shadow from which voices and laughter dimly rose. I turned my back on the revelry, looking north, the direction I would go, where the silver stream, shining in its wind, crossed a broad stretch of moorland. A dark wood bordered the moor far away. Dermot's face was in shadow, the setting sun making a gold outline around his head. You should not go. I kept my eyes on the stream. It's not a choice. Of course it is. God has called me. Dermot put his hand on my shoulder. I know the call of God, but there are many ways to serve. I became a priest. I tend to the souls of the family here. Perhaps that is not as great a thing as you seek. But you could marry Maeve and become a deacon. We could do God's work together. There are ways you can serve. Dermot's hand, meant to be a gentle gesture, felt heavy on my shoulder. I must do it. It has been my goal since the beginning. I must follow my path. The hand pressed firmer. Perhaps you feel you are too good to work the farm. Is it pride that leads you to leave? It is abject humility I follow in this way. And you must humble us all in the process? I'm sorry. I can try to convince King Domnish. Lamar is not fit for the cattle. It's a lost cause. Think of Una. Can you leave her? Think of Deirdre. Think of never knowing what becomes of them. I do think of it. But it is easy to know what will become of us. No one will marry a blind woman. 
Deidre will grow old without a husband or children to care for her, dependent on cousins, on distant relations, their wives resentful of the burden. Una will grow old knowing this, and her hope and happiness will dwindle. You could marry and have children and keep Deirdre safe. It is not your own life you sacrifice. His voice grew hard. It was a rebuke rather than a plea. I don't know what is in the future or what God has planned. I never knew you to be so uncaring. I care. Your words weigh heavy on my soul. But if I stayed, if I stayed, my life would be an empty shadow. I can't describe it. Perhaps you and I together can still convince the king. It was God's will that you were called back here. Your father understood that without you, your family loses the cattle. I shook off his hand. You always defended my father, who was a cruel man, who abused my mother and sister with harsh ways. I don't know why you were so blind to it. He was a steward to the E-Nail and increased our cattle. I don't want to hear about my father. Perhaps in the monastery you will learn to love, for you love none of us, Dermot said, his voice breaking on the last word. Anger caught in my throat. It was all because of the cattle, and the power, and the rivalry, and conflicts that cattle produced. Don't abuse me for the sake of a few animals. Don't make yourself a stranger to me. Don't end it this way. If I oppose Lemar, I have to go on living here and live with the consequences. It would be better for me not to make an enemy of him. He shook his head. The king's decision is fair. It's your decision that is not. Dermot turned and strode down the hill. I watched his shadow disappear. A lovely voice rose in the air. Una was singing. My face was hot with shame. I went back down and stood next to one of the glowing torches. The children had fallen asleep in various positions. The men were rapt at Una's song. The king himself wiping away a tear. Dermot sat staring into his cup. I looked about for Deirdre, who was curled on the ground, a sleeping child in her arms. When Una finished her song, the king raised his cup. You are an angel, to be sure. Una smiled. She came and put her arms around me before sitting next to Dermot. He raised his head and stared hard at me. The king sighed. Well, is our business settled then? You are decided and set on this goal? My mouth was dry. I must go, but I cannot leave as it is. Dermot does the most work of anyone here. As priest, he tends to our souls bringing blessings on us all. It is true I am given up all power in this world. 
I will have only the power of prayer, a fine power to have, and I will pray for you all. But, as my last act, as scion of the e Nail, I must ask that you do not deny my sister the cattle. My family must be taken care of, no less because of their lack of heirs, but perhaps all the more so. There was a pause as the king scratched his head and nodded. Dermot has ploughed while others played, and he has sown while others sowed mischief. Lamar's knife flashed in the dark, pointed at me silently, a mocking smile on his face. His father rapped the table once with his fist. And if I deny Dermot the cattle, will you stay, keep the cattle, and take your place here as a lord of superior testimony? I had a sudden understanding. If I stayed, I would be the king's rival. The king was pleased for me to go, and he would make the decision that would make it easier for me to leave. Yes, I lied, taking a chance. I was bluffing, and it pained me to see Una's face beam at me with the hope that I might stay. Lamar looked confused as Fiochrach coughed and spat. The king rubbed his grey-speckled beard and quaffed his ale. He smiled, looking self-satisfied at the magnanimity of his decision. Well then, let it be divided. Half the cattle to Lamar and half to Dermot. That is the fairest decision I can make. Are we settled? I looked at Dermot, whose face was still hard and unsmiling in the torchlight. I wished this to be enough, but I know now my wish was only that I should not feel guilty. I thought then, surely it had to be enough. Surely Dermot had no cause to resent me. I am satisfied, Dermot said quietly. Una kissed his cheek. Then I am satisfied, I said. Lamar drove the point of his knife into the table. I will abide by this also, though unkind words have been spoken. Domnash raised his cup, and they all drank to his decision. How soon do you leave? he asked. A week from today. I have one thing to do first. Una rushed over, putting her arms around me. So soon? Already? Dermot said. And why not sooner? To be continued. <laughs>